Hello, welcome to Gov Guys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who understand how the internet works better than most congressmen. I'm Mr. Hertzler. And I'm Mr. Crowder. And today we are talking about political socialization, which is how we establish our own political beliefs and identity. That's right. Today isn't really meant to be all that mind-blowing, but it's a whole area of study that helps politicians and political scientists understand voting trends, public attitudes, and it also helps in the creation of public policy. Yeah, and when we use the term public policy, we're talking about laws, regulations, and often unwritten practices in how the government addresses problems that citizens have in the country. Because at the end of the day, politicians want to at least look like they're addressing your concerns so you continue to support them. That's right. Those politicians, they can plan for a change in the weather and time, but they'll never plan for changing your mind. Hertz, are you quoting Taylor Swift again? Can't stop, won't stop. All right. Well, after a long hiatus, we're back and Taylor is back. Let's do this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. This is the Gov Guys podcast. Episode 10, The Born Ideology, How Your Political Beliefs Are Created. Let's start by talking about the factors that lead to the creation of someone's political identity. Some of those big factors are family, peers, school, media, geography, social environments, and globalization. Yeah, and by far the most influential factor in shaping your political ideology is your parents. Studies show that as many as 70% of children share similar political beliefs and values with their parents. If that changes, and that's a big if, it's usually when those children get into their mid-20s. And that makes sense. Like as soon as they become more independent, they're living by themselves, their beliefs likewise will become more independent. Yeah, and another one of those big influences are your peers, the people we hang around all the time, mainly our friends. Kind of goes back to that idea of kind of like peer pressure is sometimes we'll vote or we'll have the same political ideals as our friends because we don't want to feel left out. So, So peers is just another one of those big influences. School also plays a role, and I don't want to necessarily say that schools are indoctrination, things like that, because that that gets a little far from the point of uh, of what we're trying to say here. Uh, But school can play a role in how you feel about the world and feel about certain topics. Like, for example, Hertzler and I are coming at this from a history perspective. Depending on where you get your sources for history, it can definitely influence how you feel about things. For example, there was a project that was started not too long ago called the 1619 project which if you're using those historical sources you're going to look at history through a lens of the united states being a a flawed racist country that you know has lots of steps to take in order to make things right for people of color in protest of the 1619 project a group of people created the 1776 Project. And the 1776 Project essentially does the exact opposite. It doesn't really acknowledge any parts of the U.S. history that are controversial. It tends to wash over everything that could be seen as bad for the U.S. And so if a teacher were to get sources from either one of those exclusively, you know, that's going to shape how you interpret history. And that's why just good history teachers and good historians should look at a range of sources when they're trying to do their research. Perfect segue into that is media also plays a big role in how we view political ideology because like it or not, media stations do somewhat have their own uh, viewpoints on how they'll, they'll view certain news stories. You hear it all the time, you know, the fight between uh, the the two major political parties in the U.S. on how, you know, Fox News and, and MSNBC both have political agendas and that that if you're on the opposing side, you shouldn't really listen to one or the other. But just like Crowder said, it's important to get a good balance of 
the the different points of view of an issue to to build a good political ideology for yourself. Yeah, there's kind of this weird thing with media that you know you can watch all of your news through the lens that you want to, uh, and that's why re- a lot of the reason I almost encourage people to look outside the United States. You know, the BBC does really good reporting about what's going on in the United States, and at the end of the day, they have less stake in what's going on uh, because they're a foreign media. Correct. One thing, and it's kind of it's kind of a different thing, but it definitely has an impact on your political socialization, and that is geography. Now, we're looking at big trends more than anything else. I mean, living in a certain area isn't necessarily going to guarantee, and that's true for all of these topics, you know, it isn't necessarily going to guarantee that you turn out conservative or liberal, but if you grow up near a city, if you grow up in the Northeast, or if you grow up in the West, you're more likely going to have liberal ideology. If you grow up in the South, if you grow up in a rural area, if you grow up in the Midwest, the Great Plains, you're more likely to have a conservative ideology. People tend to settle in areas that are homogeneously similar. You know, people live in areas where they are going to share a lot of common ideas and common beliefs. And so one of the impacts of that over years and years and years is that Rural areas tend to be more conservative and more urban areas tend to be more liberal. And depending on where you live, um, it might also impact of what you do with your time and, and, and social environments, who you hang out with and where you, where you hang out plays a big role in your political socialization. Uh, for example, um, the big one, you know, where we live in North Carolina, um, it's considered the Bible belt. You have, a lot of religious groups and religious groups tend to be more conservative, especially the more Protestant the religious group is. If you're a part of an organization that wants to better society, you tend to be more liberal, especially if the group is very progressive in its understanding of society. So it just depends on where you hang out and, and what organizations you, you, you do um, tends to play a big role in how you view politics as well. Sure, and the last issue is kind of another wild card, but it's globalization. It's it's where do you view your place in the world? People who tend to see themselves as a global citizen, you know, they tend to be maybe more open-minded. They're maybe a little bit more like United States is just one of many countries, but we share more similarities and differences. They also tend to be more liberal uh, versus people who tend to see you know, themselves as in the United States, maybe they believe in kind of this um, American exceptionalism idea, perhaps, uh, how United States is essentially better than everyone else. And they tend to be relatively isolated to ideas and, and trends and things like that coming from the outside world. They tend to be more conservative in nature. So once again, as we just kind of review this, None of these are necessarily going to 100% guarantee where people fall. And sometimes it can be really tricky to kind of identify how people are ideologically. Uh, But these are just a couple of things that people have noticed over time. Because again, we're trying to understand why people are the way they are when they're making their political choices. Because that helps with things like figuring out voter trends. Like how are they going to vote? What types of issues are important to them? And so on and so forth. Yeah, and outside of those um, environmental ideas of, of voting, you also have this idea that when you lived plays a big role in how you vote in elections. Um, Prater and I are going to take a look at several generations, um, historical generations, and just talk about like how those generations view the government and government policies. So, so let's take a look at the silent generation. These people were born between the late 1920s and the 1940s. Uh, They are growing up during the Great Depression and World War II. And what's interesting about this generation is the fact that they are living in a time period where the government is playing a big role in their lives. Um, The Great Depression hit hard in the United States. People were losing their jobs. um, They were losing their homes. And they looked to the government to to help them out. And FDR and his New Deal programs played a big role in their lives in helping society get back to normal. Um, 
So so they grow up in this time period where the government is a big part and they 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 look for the government uh, to help them out anytime they needed it. Uh, they saw the government as trustworthy. They saw the government intervention as necessary. So it played a big role in their lives to have the government help them out when they needed it. But the generation is also very traditional in their social beliefs, especially if you think about family structure. They tend to be more patriarchal, more religious, and generally much more conservative from a social standpoint. Yeah, if you take them and compare them to the next big generation, the baby boomers, you're definitely going to see some contrast. My parents, for example, they were both born in 1950. Their so-called formative years were very different from the silent generation. You know, when they were 13, the president of the United States was assassinated. You know, and, and when they're entering and leaving high school, the United States is escalating the war in Vietnam, which becomes a deeply polarizing and unpopular war across the country. And all the while, in the 1960s, you have the civil rights movement going on. There's lots of political turbulence. You know, and, and by the time they're hitting their 20s, the news that's dominating the day is President Nixon and the Watergate scandal. So, like, you almost can't blame people of this generation for being less trustworthy of the government. The baby boomer generation is generally less trustworthy of institutions in general. They tend to be much more like, based on individualism, like your own drive to do things is going to lead to your success. You don't need to depend on institutions. You can't trust institutions, right? And so while they're maybe not as socially conservative as the silent generation, the baby boomers generally are more conservative than the generations that came after them. Yeah, so let's take a jump forward to millennials, people born in the early 1980s to the middle 1990s. Yeah, and we're ignoring Generation X crowd, and honestly, they're probably okay with it. Millennials are millennials are kind of like the butt of the joke. It's right us. Now. It's us. It, 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 it's our generation, right? Um, we're in a weird, weird situation. You know, we're the technology generation. Um, growing up with the birth of the internet and the 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 advancement in different technologies. Um, if you would have told people in the 1980s that they'd be walking around with a, a cellular device in their pocket, they probably would think that you're talking about a TV show like Star Trek or something like that. But politically, the millennials tend to are tending to be more liberal um, uh, because now they're moving into a time period where government assistance is needed. Uh, I'm going to throw this in there for myself. Uh, you know, the big debate right now for a lot of millennials working is the college loans um, and, and whether or not, you know, the government should aid people with, with, with colleges. You know, we grew up in a time period um, with 9-11 um, being the event that, that kind of is like our mark. Um, it, it, you know, like Crowder mentioned, the assassination of right. J, uh, John F. Kennedy, 9-11 was our historical you know, you know, a moment where people are like, where were you on that day? Yeah. And it played a big role in policy making, you know, uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the fight uh, to end terrorism in the Middle East, global warming being a big issue. Should the government play a bigger role in environmental regulation? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately being a millennial is a, is, is an interesting thing because you know, I, I don't want to aggrandize myself or anything like that, but I, I do feel like for a person who's relatively young, I mean, I feel like I've lived through a lot of historical events, like almost on a weekly basis, it feels like sometimes, you know, because like, yeah, I'm in seventh grade and 9-11 happens, right? Um, yeah, fourth grade for me. Right. So, you know, you're, you're growing up under the shadow of the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, um, you know. I feel like a lot of millennials do tend to be more liberal, as Hertzler pointed out, due to the fact that millennials have seen government do a lot of spending on things like wars. Um, but meanwhile, you have things like the Great Recession, where it's going to greatly hurt people. And even more recently, you know, COVID-19, where millennials are much more willing to turn to the government for help uh, versus, let's say, the baby boomers. Uh, and maybe Generation X even, you know, we're, we're much more willing to say, hey, we're paying taxes, we should be able to have money for 
you know, assistance. We should be able to have money for things like uh, you you mentioned uh, student loans, for example, uh, because, you know, those are issues that are only getting worse. And so a, a big millennial idea tends to be like, we don't mind paying taxes, but we want to see the money used for programs that help people. And, and you know, who knows exactly how things are going to shake out over time. There's this old school belief and there's this old school trend in politics that people tend to get more conservative as they get older. And that's definitely true for the silent generation, the baby boomers, you know, but we'll see if that holds true for millennials. I, I've seen a few studies recently, which suggests maybe not, you know, maybe this is one of the generations that kind of stay ideologically similar. Yeah. We're not that old yet. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how we're going to turn out. Yeah, we don't even know if tomorrow is guaranteed, right? Like, that's just, that's the life as a millennial. Um, but, you know, with COVID-19, this is definitely going to have a huge impact on the next generation, which we're teaching, you know, Gen, Gen Z. This Gen Z crowd, they're just now starting to enter into the political realm. Gen Z is kind of people starting from about 1997, 1998, getting into about 2010, 2012. So, you know, right where we're talking to the current students that we're teaching in high school and I'd say middle school, uh, roughly right around now, um, you know, COVID-19 is going to have a permanent impact on our generation and, and the Gen Z crowd. We'll have to see how it impacts their politics because you think about government response and, and personal response to COVID-19, like, how do people view the lockdowns that took place? You know, did, did people say, oh, we should stay at home and do our part? Did people say, oh, screw that. I'm going to go out because it's my rights, my freedom. Um, you know, you get to things like vaccines. Did people say, again, like, I'm doing my part. I'm going to get a vaccine. I'm going to help it out. I'm going to trust these institutions. Or did people say, you know, kind of the the my body, my choice, uh, the government's not going to make me get a vaccine, you know? So that has been a huge dividing line, I feel like, in, uh, you know, the generations. And as this new Gen Z comes into being, you know, it'll be interesting how their politics are affected down the line too. Yeah, another big issue for the Gen Z crowd, especially that's very divisive, is the war in Ukraine. Sure. Um, with foreign policy, should we, you know, should we be helping or should we stay out of it and 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 not worry it so much why are we spending money on foreign aid when when there's problems right here at home that we need to fix right moving on other considerations of your political identity is where you are in life you know crowder mentioned it already that you know as we get older we tend to to change our viewpoint on certain ideas but um it also is you know, the different age we are, what we view as important issues changes as well. So, for example, if you're a younger voter, you're more concerned about things like student debt, jobs prospects, you know, how well is the economy doing? Am I going to be able to find a job? Once you're middle aged, you're more concerned about housing, equality for schools for your kids, and safe communities. Because at this point, you're going to have a family, you're going to want what's best for them. And then when you get older, you care more about things like retirement and healthcare, things that have been promised to you for some time now that you've been paying into. You know, how is the government going to promote those ideas? Yeah, and this whole concept is called the life cycle effect, and it, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, you're more likely to support politicians and parties that hone in on your interests and your concerns. Like, it makes sense that older Americans have zero interest in student debt. They worked their way up in their job with like a high school diploma, or they went to college for like a few thousand dollars. If they had any debt from that, it's long been paid off and, and vice versa. Retirement policy isn't a huge draw for 20 year olds. Wait, we'll get to retire. <laughs> we'll find out. Herzer, how about you talk about the political spectrum? We've been talking a lot about how ideologies form, but what are those ideologies? Well, ideologies are just, once you take all the factors that have impacted your life, it you kind of start making viewpoints on those. And, and, and the political spectrum 
is basically the combination of all of those those situations and all that data. And it kind of like puts you in an area of where you would most likely vote when it comes to an election. And I really wish I had a visual here because I like to use this as like a two-dimensional graph where you have a center point and you have two arrows moving out to the left and to the right. Um, the further left you go, the more likely, the more liberal you become, the more, the more you think the government needs to intervene, the government needs to uh, create laws and policies that keep society equal um, when it either it comes to uh, social issues or economic issues. The farther right you go, the more conservative you tend to become. The more likely you think that the government should stay out of society. Um, we need a smaller central government. We need to leave everything to the states. Um, and that the only thing the government should really step into is, uh, you know, protecting the nation uh, from other nations. And then you have the center point. And the center point is the people that we like to call moderates, people who have viewpoints that align with both uh, political ideologies. So, so like I said, when we, when we look at the political spectrum, we're looking at this, this line of which side do we fall on? Um, are we left or are we right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the important things to understand in American politics, especially, is that none of the current major parties are going to be that wildly far from the center. We like to really cast that, you know, this side is extreme left or this side is extreme right. But if you look at it and you especially compare it to other parties throughout the entire world, both of our political parties are pretty moderate. And if you go really, really far to the left or really, really far to the right, you end up in basically an authoritarian system, whether we're talking about communism all the way to the left or whether we're talking about fascism all the way to the right. You know, the, the beliefs are different, but essentially how government functions is somewhat similar. And, and once again, with our modern political parties that we have in the United States, at least the major ones, we're pretty moderate. So... Let me take that moment and run with it. If we're talking about party that tends to be more ideological liberal in the United States currently, that's the Democratic Party. And if you're talking about the party that tends to be more ideologically conservative currently, that's the Republican Party. Now, the reason I want to be very clear about this is defining currently is because parties change over time. That's something we're going to get into next episode, so I don't want to go too far with that. But... Just real quick spoiler, yeah, the Republican Party used to be the more liberal party. The Democratic Party used to be more conservative, but that was 150 years ago. So let's look at some of the examples for how liberals feel about the role of government. Uh, and I want to keep it relatively simple. I'm going to focus on economic ideas and social ideas. Um, so economically, as Hertzler mentioned, a lot of liberal ideas tend to be more in favor of big government. Uh, so economically, the, the Democratic Party today is much more in line with what's called as, uh, Keynesian economics. And in Keynesian economics, there's this belief that the government should create programs for the betterment of society. And that betterment of society might be, you know, to create more equality, to provide programs for retirement. Um, a really good example of this historically would be the New Deal programs. You know, something we talked about a little bit earlier in this episode, but the New Deal programs are largely credited with helping uh, the United States get out of the worst parts of the Great Depression because it dealt for large government investment in the economy and, and lots of government intervention to make sure that people had jobs and that they were earning money and that they were investing back in the economy. And so, again, Keynesian economics Make sure you associate with that more of an a liberal ideology. In terms of social priorities, it's actually kind of a weird backtrack because you tend to think of liberal ideas being more, you know, big government and stuff like that. But when it comes to social priorities, it's kind of the opposite. Um, in regards to your own personal identity, in regards to who you're in a relationship with, in regards to, you know, the, the decisions that you make about your body, like let's say abortion issues, things like that, liberals tend to be actually more hands-off. The government shouldn't make those types of decisions for me. 
And, and so with that being said, one more thing that I need to make sure I include when we're talking about liberal ideology, and it deals a little bit more about economic programs and social programs, but it definitely overlaps. The belief in entitlement programs. Uh, liberals ever since, or really the New Deal programs of Social Security uh, by FDR, and you have some great society programs of Medicare and Medicaid meant to provide health care for uh, the elderly or the, the poor. Uh, those are entitlement programs. And the modern Democratic Party, uh, the more liberal party, really wants to keep those around because they view them as a vital social safety net. Yeah, and on the flip side, let's talk about the the difference between the conservatives and liberals. So, so when it comes to economic policy for conservatives, they believe in an ideal uh, called uh, supply-side economics, or a lot of people here in the 80s, you know, King Ronald Reagan uh, called it trickle-down economics. The biggest thing that conservatives believe that the government should do with economic policy is lower taxes. That's the big idea that they want to focus on. They want to lower taxes at uh, the corporate level, but also lower taxes at uh, the personal level as well. Uh, the way it, it, it's termed trickle-down economics is the belief is that if you lower taxes, people are going to be able to spend money in more areas, um, and it's going to drive the economy. People are going to have uh, more money to spend on goods and services. Also, at the, the higher level, the theory is that if you cut taxes at, at the top, that they are going to be able to have more money to spend on their employees, which again, will give more money to people, which they'll be able to spend more money in society, right? That's the, that's the real belief with their economic system. They also believe that the government should just stay out of the economy uh, at all costs, that, that supply and demand should be the thing that's running prices and running society. Conservatives also believe that businesses should not get handouts from the government. They believe that they should they should succeed or fail on their own. That if a business has the tools uh, to be successful, that they are going to stay being successful. They're going to make a profit. But a business should not be bailed out by the government just because the CEO or whoever's running it does not have the success of doing so. All right. Um, so again. The idea, hands off the, the economy, let supply and demand rule the day. When it comes to social priorities, the biggest thing for conservatives is they believe in traditional values. That's the biggest thing. I, I said earlier that, that we live in the Bible Belt, um, and a lot of conservatives tend to be very religious, and like I said, tend to be Protestant religions, and, and they do everything in their power to protect those traditional values. Similarly, where Crowder was mentioning that, that you would think that the, the liberal side would want to have the government step in and protect different social issues, the conservatives are on the flip side where you know, they have to be careful with um, how much government regulation they have when it comes to protecting their traditional values. For example, recently we've had the government overturning uh, Roe versus Wade. And state legislatures have gone as far as protecting these traditional values. You know, living in North Carolina, we we had the 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 bathroom bill that was a very heated um, time in North Carolina. Um, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. Many people argue that North Carolina lost a lot of state revenue um, because we lost a lot of events that that pulled out um, because of, of these controversial laws. Yeah, and I I think of laws also like a, a lot of laws in place right now with, um, you know, transgender athletes and things like that. You know, you could argue that you're making laws that are going to potentially infringe the individual rights of some groups in, in favor of others. So, you know, this, this whole non-interventionist thing can be potentially tricky when it you do use government sometimes as a tool of protecting traditional values. Uh, sometimes those traditional values come at the expense of some people's rights. Yeah, and we're also seeing that right now. Um, I don't know how much we should say, but uh, 
the state of Florida with Ron DeSantis and and the way he's micromanaging education in the state in a way um, to promote traditional values in, in education. Right. But how do we know how what people feel in society? Um, there's a very scientific way of doing so um, if it's done correctly. Um, and it's something that we we like to look at, but we don't like answering. And that's polls. All right. Um, polls is an important tool that politicians and political parties use to help gauge what they should be doing uh, and how they, what issues they should be running on in a campaign or what pieces of legislation they should be bringing forth to Congress. Polls are very important because, again, they're gauging how society feels about a, a candidate or, or a new bill that's trying to be passed. And they will use that data to amend certain pieces of the legislation or not. And it's important to note that that they need to do that in a very unbiased way. And we'll talk about a little bit in, you know, in this little section about how polls are done correctly and how polls are, are done kind of, you know, skewed in a way. Yeah. So Hertzler's talking about different types of polls, which is how, you know, the, the government gets to understand how people feel about things. Because if you're talking about the best possible option to know about how people feel, You'd ask everybody, but like, that's impossible. You know, that would take years. Uh, and, and ultimately by the time you figured out what the answer was, it, it, you know, years have passed. So you have to do a scientific poll where you actually get a sample of a random sample of the population. And this random sample is meant to be generally a, a good microcosm of your population in the country. And that should be your goal when you're making this random sample is trying to select people who have an equal chance of participating, but also people who are generally representative of the population as a whole. So when we're talking about polls, there are lots of different polls that you might do or you might see. Um, one of the common polls is called a benchmark poll in which, you know, if let's say a person is thinking, gauging interest in the possible presidential political run or something like that, right? They might do what's known as a benchmark poll which you're going to have people kind of put, you know, we'll call them put feelers out there, right? You kind of say like, you know, would you theoretically support a run if if Mr. Hertzer were to run for president? Like, what would you think there? By the way, he's not eligible for that. So uh, you have I, to I'm wait. four years away from being president. You have to wait a few more years, kiddo. Same for me. But with that being said, that's a benchmark poll. A tracking poll is looking at how voters feel about different topics over time. And, and this is one of the really big things that you look at when it comes to an election, because like the things that are on people's minds change. Like right now, one of the big things on people's mind might be inflation. But if you go back 10 years, no one's talking about inflation. No one's caring about inflation, right? Uh, so tracking polls keep track of the issues that people are really like thinking about things that really get them motivated to vote or, or maybe vote for or vote against somebody. Right. Hurts and, and Americans lo love so, tracking polls um, because we're a nation that loves to, we, we talk about, you know, talking about politics at the dinner table all the time. People are always asking who's winning, who's losing. Tracking polls are a great way of, of uh, it's like scoreboard watching. You know um, I think the term is horse race journalism. Um, right. They're using that as, as, tracking who's winning, who's losing. That way we have a clear-cut idea of, of how an election or or how a issue is being resolved. Yeah, and tracking polls, especially if you're talking about candidates, have some negatives to them. Since we're just on this topic, I'm going to jump in real quick. Um, this, is kind of, this is kind of called the bandwagon effect. Like, it's this weird phenomenon in psychology. No one likes to pick a loser, right? And so when you start hearing talk of, oh, this person's pulling ahead or this person's moving behind, things like that, people are going to gravitate to the winner, even if they don't necessarily love it uh, or love that choice. Uh, they hop on the bandwagon, so to speak, uh, and, and ultimately will choose to support a candidate, even if it's not someone they weren't necessarily thrilled about because no one wants to choose a loser. Yeah, especially this is a big problem in the primaries, especially. Right. Um, 
when when you start to see one candidate for a party becoming more popular than another, people will just jump on that guy. It's like, this is our guy. He's going to be our presidential candidate. Yeah, a really good recent example is in 2020 with uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden came in really bad positioning for Iowa and New Hampshire, but then he won South Carolina pretty handily and pretty much overnight, he was the choice. You know, like, I'm not saying it's right or wrong necessarily, but you do have this really strange effect that all of a sudden, at some point in time, somebody starts winning and then they're the choice, they're the pick, right? Um, And Hertzler, when it comes to elections, how do we know like who won or who lost so quickly. Yeah, back to this idea of Americans love scoreboard watching. Um, We try to predict elections. Sometimes we do it pretty well. Other times we miss it by a a large mark. Um, And we do this through two types of polls. We'll either have a, a entrance or an exit poll, where when you go to the polling booth, you will vote. And as you're leaving, somebody will ask you, you know, how did it go? They'll interview you after you vote, like like you just did something important. Um, but they'll ask you, who'd you vote for? Maybe they'll ask you, what was the important issue that, that caused you to vote for this person? Um, and then they'll send this data to whatever publication they're working for, and they'll try to predict who is winning a certain state or a district so that they can get that information out to the people so that the people know how the election's going. Yeah. And, you know, this is also kind of maybe Americans inability to be patient, you know, like uh, it's it's a it's a weird, really 20th, almost 21st century phenomenon where we know who won, because back in the day, you know, you're talking about election results arriving by horse from various districts and counties and states all throughout the country. You know, it would be months until you really know who won an election. But now we basically know the night of Election Day who wins. And it's not because the votes are just counted faster. It's because we have entrance and exit polling. Um, And that's one of the really important things that we have to keep in mind is counting votes takes time. Uh, You know, some counties have 700 people in them. And it's really easy to count up the votes in a couple of hours. But when you talk about counties who have 50,000 people in them, 70,000 people in them. Counties with the big cities. Right. County Like Los Angeles County. The voters in Los Angeles County are bigger than something like 20 states, right? So it takes time to count some of the votes. And I think especially when we're talking about controversies around elections in the last couple of years, you know, votes, vote counts are going to change as votes come in. Uh, But News networks, because people want to know the answer, they want to know who won. Uh, News networks have to be very careful about using exit polls, entrance polls, and and polling from before the election. Uh, And and basically, they're making an educated choice. Uh, You you saw this in the 2000 election, for example, with uh, Florida. The election in Florida was incredibly close. Hertzler, I think it was separated by about 500 votes. Mm Mm-hmm. But There's one voting, like one town in Florida that it was, yeah, it was, was where Mi- a lot of the controversy was. It was Miami-Dade County, absolutely. But, you know, you're you're talking about one whole state that's decided by about 500 votes. Um, and, and with that being said, I think Gore was declared the winner for a while on a couple of major networks on election night. I think and, Bush was about and, to give us. And, uh, and then, yeah, no, I think you're, you think you might be right about that. And then, and then Fox News declared Bush the winner of Florida. And then you're like, well, hold on. And basically every single network pulled their predictions for Florida away. And Florida wouldn't be decided until a Supreme Court case said, hey, we got to stop counting votes. We're never going to actually know who won Florida. And, and Bush was declared the winner. Uh, it has a lot of controversy to it. And we're really underselling a lot of the drama that took place but it just goes to show that polls aren't 100% perfect. It's usually just a best educated guess based on trends, based on voter data, and based on how people answer things at the entrance and exit polls. And it goes to this idea too that the media is trying, this idea of media trying to be the first to report on something. Right. You know, you want to be the first person to announce that the president wins. So if you think that you have a good poll that that declares a winner, even if it's wrong you're still going to 
be that try yeah, to be that first person. You're almost it, you're almost itching to do it because you want to be the person who does it, right? Remember Crowder, Dewey beat Truman, right? Another <laughs> another famous election from 1948 when it was predicted that Thomas Dewey was going to beat the incumbent president uh, uh, Harry Truman. And there's a very famous, I think it was Chicago Tribune newspaper, because yep. they were they were hot off the presses trying to predict the presidential election. And uh, yeah, Thomas Dewey never became president. Nope. So when we're talking about presidents and you know how people feel about presidents, Hertzler, this is another poll that we love to look at. Very similar to, to tracking polls, uh, because it tracks data over a long period of time, uh, over a candidate's time in office. We have what is known as approval ratings, um, basically gauging how society feels about a certain politician at, in their time of office. Yeah, and the right? approval the approval rating questions tend to be pretty simple. You know, are you supportive of the job that President Obama, President Trump, President Biden is doing as president? It's usually a, a yes or no type question. Yeah, and it's and it's gauging. Um, you know, they are also trying to gauge on whether or not a president's going to win re-election or not. Sure, um, uh, because you know approval ratings are everything um, when it comes, especially for president. You hear this in the news all the time. I I, I assume if you turn on the news tonight, one of the things they'll talk about is you know how Americans feel about Joe Biden. Right. And, and another way of gauging interest from Americans and seeing kind of like, what is your priority? What's not your priority? It, it, this last thing is not a scientific poll, but it is one way in which they gather data and they gather information about voters and voter trends is focus groups. Focus groups are a little weird, but you get together this group of people like, you know, 20, 30 people and they're voters that come and sit down over, it's usually over a period of time, and you essentially sit down and talk to them about issues that are important to them, how they feel about things. You're not trying to get quick yes or no type answers, but you're really looking for more detailed things. A good example of a focus group might be something like, you know, how people feel about the Second Amendment. Uh, and you're going to actually have people who are there who are like, uh, oh, I'm a victim of gun violence, and here's how I feel about things, or you know, I'm a hunter, here's how I feel about it, so on and so forth. So focus groups don't necessarily give you good, like, numbers that you can shoot out and say, here, you know, here's what we like, here's what we don't like, but it can give a really good breadth of knowledge about how voters feel about specific topics. And it helps Congress people write legislation in some ways, just because of the fact that that they're hearing it from people who are ex that that have to live by these laws. So so focus groups are very important, especially in the legislative process. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about bad polling. Let's talk about some of the big mistakes that pollsters do, sometimes intentionally, uh, when they're taking polls. And the first one I'm going to have you take, Hertzler, and it's bias in how they write or frame the question. Yeah, yeah. One of the big. Uh, ways that a poll could be done in a negative way is with bad polling questions and just the way questions are worded. They're almost trying to get you to answer for their agenda. That sounds bad, but that's basically what they're trying to do. One of the big mistakes that you can do with a, a poll is ask questions that one, have a yes or no answer, or two, only really have two two opinions, all right? Th th those are the big ways that that you know that a poll is, is going to be done in, in a very shady way. Or the question is just so leading, leading to get you to answer the way they want you to. Um, like, I think there was a poll done during um, uh, the war on terror. It's like, do you love America? Who's going to say no? Right. right? Right, like, like you're gonna say yes to that. I do love America. I live here. This is my home. Like, or, a, or a good vaccine question I saw come up was something like, "Do you agree the government should stamp on your civil rights in order to make you get a vaccine?" You know, or one of the ones with abortion, and it's a little crude. So I, you know, yeah. maybe maybe a little bit of a warning, but you know, do you support killing babies? Like, 
you know, of course you're only going to be able to answer one way or the other, regardless of how you might feel about the issue, because the question's just framed in such a way that you couldn't say yes or no to that. Yeah, yeah. People are going to question your morals if, if you answer in a way that's, that's you know. Yeah, maybe, maybe a less controversial one is how good a job is the president doing right now? Because that makes you feel like I should say, oh, he's doing pretty good. Or he's doing well. He's doing great. You know, if you say how good are, how good are they doing? It would almost be weird to say not. They're not doing good. They're doing terribly, right? Um, or so, or so a simple very, poll. Go ahead. Or a simple poll of like, you know, an NRA poll. Do you own a gun? Yes. No follow up. Right. It's like, why do you own a gun? To be a great one. Like, like, what is the purpose of you owning a firearm? Sure. It's like, look, ninety. Everybody owns a gun. It's like, yes, but why? Right. And, and and with that being said, you know, there can also be bias in respondent answers. Like one of the classic things that this is probably true everywhere, but I would say, you know, maybe one of the silly things about uh, a, a lot of Americans kind of ego driven people is they don't know what you're asking. So they will make up an answer to sound intelligent. Like you might say, how do you feel about women's suffrage? And you may not have any idea what suffrage is, but you're like, oh, I, I don't want women to suffer. Yeah, no, I, I'm not for that. And you're talking <laughs> about the you're talking about the right to vote, right? <laughs> uh, so a lot of people are willing to like come up with an answer, even if they're not informed on what we're talking about. Uh, and, and another good one, and this is a really weird, interesting kind of psychological thing is societal bias where you don't want to give an answer that's going to be unfavorable to a majority of people right uh so an example of this and i'll get into bradley effect in just a moment but like white respondents might lie and say they're going to vote for a black candidate so that they look good they feel good they're saying yeah i'll, I'll support them when in the end they may not actually vote for them at all or they may vote for the white candidate the name bradley effect comes from a California gubernatorial election in which um, there was a Los Angeles mayor who was uh, African-American. His last name was Bradley. He was running for governor in California. And all the polls predicted that he had a really good chance of winning, and he's probably going to easily win, in fact. Uh, but once the election actually happened, he did not win. And a lot of people were kind of scratching their head. And, and one of the political scientists thought that a really good possibility of this might be is a lot of white Californians said, yeah, I'm going to vote for him. And they didn't end up doing that. Also, people are more likely to change their answers to a face-to-face -face poll than, than a poll done online, whether you're clicking answers on a computer or you don't know who you're talking to. Like if it's on a, a you're, you're being phone called, I feel like. Yeah, and a lot of people are also what we call shy voters. You know, like, I, I think that's one of the big phenomenon that they're looking at with 2016. In case we don't know, 2016, the election was between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And a good number of polls said it was probably going to be close, but almost universally, everyone, th everyone thought that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. She was easily going to win. And... What, full, what polls failed to predict is that a lot of voters were shy voters, shy Trump voters, and they didn't necessarily say outright, yeah, I'm voting for Trump. Um, but they ended up either voting for Trump or or when there's like, uh, I, yeah, I'll vote for Hillary, and they never did, right? Um, so shy voters can definitely play a problem in polling as well. And that's one thing that you have to look at when you're trying to formulate a poll, and especially when you're publishing results, is, you know, possible errors that could have been made. So ultimately, back to when you're figuring out a sample of people, I, I talked about how your goal should be to try to make the sampling that you choose be as good a microcosm of the overall population as, as possible. And pollsters have to acknowledge that this is really challenging. You know, you have to be able to get a whole bunch of 18-year-old, 18 to 29-year-olds to answer their phone. Like, we don't use our phones for that. Um, and, and, and so, like, they have to admit that when they're publishing their data, they have what's known as a sampling error, meaning that there's a fair chance 
that this poll is not going to be 100% right. Um, and usually the high mark for a good sampling poll is within four percentage points. So let's say, for example, in the 2016 election, you know, Hillary is polling at 49% and Trump is polling at 46%. Okay. Most people are going to look at that poll and say, oh yeah, well, Hillary's going to win. She's up by three points. But if the poll sampling error is plus or minus four points, there's a really good chance that Trump could actually win that election, which he ends up doing because of the fact that it's within the sampling error. If a bunch of that kind of vote error that could possibly be there swing one way or the other, that could change the results uh, of the poll and the results of the election in this case. So it's important to note that that different politicians view polls differently. For example, we, we talk about most of the time we use these polls for how public policy is driven or how races are going um, for specific candidates. So, so for example, people in the House pay attention to polls all the time because they're constantly running for re-election. They want to know how their constituents feel about them and how well of a job they're doing because they want to make sure that they're going to be able to win re-election. Senators and presidents don't have to focus on them as much. You know, they get longer terms. They will view them, especially, you know, president will start worrying about, um, you know, uh, his his approval rating about the, the third or fourth year of his first term um, just to make sure that, that society is, is in his favor. And he'll slow down making crazy moves in the White House uh, because he doesn't want the public to overreact or, or, or some, some crazy bounce of the ball cause his approval ratings to fall. When it comes to the Supreme Court, they don't really use the uh, approval ratings. They don't really care uh, because, you know, they have, the, they have those live terms, right? So, so they don't have to care about how society views them. They don't have to care about making crazy changes to public policy because of the fact that we can't vote them out. The whole point of this, this episode is just explaining the fact that we as Americans have different political ideals, but we come together and, and share those ideals to try to make society better for all of us. And we need to know how we should do that with public opinion polls. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We are the Gov Guys podcast. We are currently on TikTok, uh, Instagram. You can also listen to us. Obviously, you're listening to us now, but we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to us. We hope you have a great day, and we'll get an episode out real soon. Take care, guys.